Welcome to The Why Chaser, the Thinking Christians blog and podcast. This episode is a reading of an existing article on The Why Chaser blog. The aim is to help those who can't or don't want to read access the content published on the site. Subscribe to receive updates for future episodes and articles, or visit the blog to read more articles like this one. Should women be allowed to preach, teach, or lead? It is odd to think that the debate on whether women may preach, teach, or lead a church is still a thing. For those who didn't grow up in the church environment and who might be looking in from the inside, here's a summary of why women aren't church leaders. The Bible says a woman shouldn't even speak in church. There are two places in the New Testament that explicitly say, Women shouldn't preach, let alone lead. One can be found in 1 Timothy 2 and the other in 2 Corinthians 14. 1 Timothy 2 verse 11 to 14. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. 2 Corinthians 14, verse 34 and 35. The woman should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. As the casual reader might observe, Neither of these authors had a high view of a woman's capability or her right to contribute to the community. And as you would rightly guess, any young woman in the post-Christian world who looks at these verses would rather write off Christianity because of its archaic ideas. Understanding the author's points of views. I'll be the first to admit that when I read those verses, my belly riles at the narrow-minded simplicity that diminishes my God-given talents and worth. However, for them, this was their normal. Slavery was assumed. Women were viewed as property that can be exchanged to improve your position or as the carrier of your progeny. If your wife was barren, a bad cook, or generally annoying, you could divorce her without much ado. If your daughter was promiscuous, it was completely acceptable to have her stoned because no man would want a spoiled bride. These mindsets aren't unique to the Bible or even the Middle East. Civilization has rarely adopted a matriarchal society or one that viewed women as equal to men. This factoid makes it easier to understand where the authors are coming from, even though I don't agree with them. But if these are archaic worldviews, why does the modern church prohibit women preaching? Well, this is where it gets embarrassing for us Christians. Some of us believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Those who read Leviticus and become horrified at what is the acceptable treatment of slaves and women point to the fact that this was the Old Covenant. They argue that the New Testament is the ushering in of the New Covenant and the renewed community of faith. 
because of this new covenant view, doing things the way it was done 2,000 years ago is okay. Which, quite frankly, is shocking. To me, it's based on the assumption that the moment Jesus stepped into the lives of Paul, Peter, and every other person after them, they became holy and fully Christ-like, forgetting completely that the disciples failed Jesus regularly while they followed him. They're forgetting that these guys were Muppets, just as much as we are Muppets. Proponents of this view disregards the fact that these books in the New Testament are actually letters. Letters which are one side of a conversation addressed to a specific group of people in a time and a place far removed from our own. It is also only a portion of the letters written to the churches at that time. The rest was excluded from our canon and can be found in the Apogrypha. Funnily enough, liberal churches feel uncomfortable with the idea that there are churches that still yearn for segregation. However, they do not feel uncomfortable with having the same attitudes towards women who are only allowed in certain spheres of family and church. Do we look on all scriptures as archaic and irrelevant? No. Though scripture wasn't created by historians or by those in pursuit of fact, it was created by philosophers and priests who wanted to create a blueprint on how to navigate life. They wrote, and others curated, these works to answer the things we all grapple with. The story of the garden and the fall deals with the communion we had with God and how, through our own actions, we messed this up. It tells a story of how this relationship is restored. The creation story is not there to scientifically answer how the world works, but to help guide us to the meaning of our own lives. Truth can still be found in this ancient collection of works. So, should women be allowed to preach or lead a church? I'll leave this question to you because I'm still wrestling with the indoctrination that women should only fill certain roles. The thought of a female pope or a female church leader makes me squirm. Again, this is laughable because I am a team leader who has a male subordinate in my secular job. But I want to leave you with scripture. Two stories, one that follows the other, the two creation stories. In Genesis 1, the cherry on the creation cake was the creation of mankind. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female were created in the image of God. God gave them authority over all creation. They were equal in every way. In Genesis 2, the story is a little different. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God's very essence is breathed into man. However, the woman is created as an afterthought and doesn't get the same intimacy and godly ruach or God's breath. She's made from the glory of man, not the glory of God. So before you decide, here's some 
Bible history. What many people don't know is that these two stories were written by different authors. The Genesis 2 story and swaths of Genesis and Exodus was written by an unknown person in the early years of Solomon's reign. It was penned to make sense of Israel's history and place in the world up until that point. This writer is known among the scholars as the Yahwist writer. This creation story, Genesis 2, bound humans and the entire created order together. His story gave answers to questions the ancients had. Why did weeds grow in cultivated fields? Why did humans have dominion over animals? The first creation story, Genesis 1, was one of the last parts of the Hebrew scripture to be written. During the Babylonian exile, the priests placed more emphasis on traditions that had fallen into general disuse, circumcision and Sabbath. This was done to keep the Jewish separateness intact, despite being deprived of land and temple, which is the foundation of every nation. These writers are known as the Deuteronomists. The Genesis 1 creation story was created to establish Sabbath as part of the created order. Sabbath should be observed because God rested at the culmination of creation. These two stories are written 400 years apart by authors who want to give guidance to a people in remarkably different circumstances. Their worldviews are so far removed from each other as ours when we compare ours to the views of citizens of the 17th century. Both stories are in the Bible. Both establish the value of woman. Which of these stories will you choose to shape your view of woman? Which of these stories answers the question, should women be allowed to preach or lead a church? The meaning of Luke 11.44, Unmarked Graves Explained. As many of the things Jesus said, there is a lot of depth and meaning hidden in his sayings and not just his parables. In this in instance, there are two audiences he is targeting with his sniper rifle of wit and words, the Pharisees and his disciples. But first, let's read Luke 11.44. But woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us too. Luke 11, verse 42 to 45. Jesus' warning to his disciples here is that there are many that wear the name of God in their lives, even on their sleeves. The Jewish Pharisees used to wear small black boxes on their sleeves containing writings of the Torah, with the goal to elevate their status as pious and holy. The disciples shouldn't be deceived by this associative claim to God, because they are like places that contain death. The Pharisees based their lives around appearances seeming the devout follower of Yahweh, but really doing it for selfish gains. He warns his disciples with this, Do not follow that way, it does not lead to life. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were offended because of the stuff in the reason. 
The meaning of the message to the Pharisees and the lawnmakers needs to be understood in the context of Jewish law. Corpses were unclean. You can look at Numbers 19 verse 16. Your proximity to a corpse made you ceremonially unclean. This wasn't a problem to be unclean. The meaning of the message to the Pharisees and the lawmakers needs to be understood in the context of Jewish law. Corpses were unclean. See Numbers 19 verse 16. And your proximity to a corpse made you ceremonially unclean. It wasn't a problem to be unclean. The problem only came into play if you were unclean and entered the presence of God in the temple. These laws were only applicable to the high priest and those who entered the temple to minister before the altar. For various reasons, the Pharisees applied the, these laws to their daily lives. Their main drive in life was to live in a state of ceremonial cleanliness and get others to live like this too. If you have some time to dig into what defines ceremonial cleanliness, you will notice that there are a lot of items that would make you unclean. For example, coming into, a contact, coming into contact with a woman who is having her period or touching someone with a rash on their hand in the marketplace. Living in a way that avoids uncleanliness isn't just a lot of work, but it would make you an unkind person. Why the Pharisees were offended by the unmarked graves accusation. Simply put, Jesus told the Pharisees that they were ceremonially unclean all the time. Their life's mission was a failure, and they weren't pleasing God in any form or shape. By calling the Pharisees unmarked graves, he was telling them that they were making everyone they were encountering ceremonially unclean. In essence, they were failing in their pursuit of righteousness personally, but they were also preventing others from entering the presence of God.